Welcome back to I'd Love To, But I'm So Tired, a space dedicated to conversations on status quo fatigue. My guest today is Bethena. For those of you who are able to follow complicated family relationships, Bethena is my older sister's niece while at the same time being the daughter of one of my mom's dear friends. We have been in each other's lives since before birth. Bethena is a Yemeni American who identifies as a woman, entrepreneur, and a citizen of the world. Growing up in an international community across the globe, and having to make a life for herself in St. Louis, Missouri proved challenging, yet pivotal to her personal development. She has intentionally opened her life and mind to the canopy of cultural groups within the US with much more to learn. Kutena is a diversity and inclusion advocate, values the power of networking, supporting local businesses, enjoys the outdoors, and is always up to trying new experiences. Welcome Kutena. Hey. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. No, I mean, it's been a, a whirlwind, I think, of our lives. We haven't actually spent that much time together, funnily enough, but our lives have always crisscrossed. Always. Oh, my God. I still remember your house, the big opening <laughs> that looks down. Like, I remember your house so much. But like you said, I was like, Seba's always been in my life. We've always crossed paths, but mm-hmm. we really, our friendship never fully manifested, but here we are and it, there's always time for it, but absolutely. the love has always been there. And likewise, and absolutely, there is plenty of time. And some of the messages that you were saying really resonated with the themes I wanted to explore on feeling exhausted with status quo. So, you know, capitalism, rigidity in systems not having a sense of belonging, all of these things that we keep looking yeah. for. Let's just get straight into it, I think. How exhausting is it being told that things are the way they are and can't be changed? Man, I have worked in multiple industries and just in my life in general where it's this is the way it's always been. And depending on who you're having the conversation with will have a varied result, right? It's very... Um, different when I'm having the conversation with my Yemeni family and friends is a complete different conversation than I'm having it with people who are in the U.S. or in Europe or in what we quote unquote the civilized world right you know being an advocate of change that's that kind of comes with the territory though right it's uh you're gonna hear the things have always been this way or things have gotten way better which in some regards they have or have they just changed the way they look you know, is it just an illusion that things have gotten better? But to be an advocate of change, it's something that we have to continuously do. And, um, you know, I get being tired of it. But if we want to see a change, we have to keep the work going. And it doesn't always have to be in an advocacy political way. We can always mm-hmm. do it in a small grassroots way or in a day-to-day lifestyle way. It's There's multiple ways, I think, that we can slice the cat, right? Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree with you there. I think it's very easy to have someone paint us with the brush of being radicalist or idealist when we're talking about things being better. I'm often getting called, oh, you're not being really realistic if you really think that people should be working less. I mean, the economy is not going to run. And and I'm not an economist or anything like that. But I just think to myself, we're all intelligent people. There's a lot of people in the world and we're really saying we can't think about better ways to do things. Well, AI is happening, Mm -hmm. right? It is very much happening. And the conversation around artificial intelligence is kind of interesting to me. There is the scare of there is going to be no more jobs. AI is going to take over everything. And there is a little Y2K feel for me in there, right? Like when Y2K was coming, like there was this crazy panic about what's going to happen. And I think there is a feel to that. Like there's a similarity I'm feeling again. I'm no economist or engineer or anything like that. So I'm speaking completely from a personal perspective. But I think AI is actually going to shift a lot of that. And I really do think AI is going to help us in our day-to-day tasks to where our workload is not so heavy. Because what's happening now is a lot of companies are giving people more loads than they can carry in life from a work perspective. And if you have AI that can take on some of that, I think it's going to be used, hopefully, right? Hopefully. The romantic in me wants to think that hopefully it will be used to actually enhance our lifestyle and take away some of that heavy workload that, you know, we take on every day. But 
You know, that's the beautiful thing about living in a capitalist place, right? It's pros and cons to everywhere you go. And this is something I think that, you know, I went to Egypt for a while and, you know, maybe the capitalism has rubbed down on me. I'm like, money, money, money. How can you make money? How can you grow money? Why are we sitting stagnant? Why is people not working? Like that was one of the things that drive me crazy about our societies. There's a lot of stagnation. And people are okay with it as long as they're eating, right? So for me, I am all about making the money and I don't mind working hard, but I do believe in social responsibility while we do that. And I think we can do it, provide better lifestyles for people that work for us. My business in St. Louis, I paid people way more market price, but I was okay with it and my customers were okay with it. So my customers were happy to pay me more because they understood that I'm providing for my crew members a decent lifestyle. And I want a decent lifestyle. We work hard for it. I've always believed in making money from while being socially responsible. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive, right? And I think that's a big part of what has happened is there is a greed factor where people just, for me, I'm okay with making $500,000 instead of $800,000. Like that's still a good lifestyle. You know, it's the balance of paying it forward, growing the community you live in, teaching people something, mentoring, and like, because there is enough money out there, but it's just not in the right hands. It's not distributed evenly. It's not, there's no distribution of wealth that's done properly. So what is, you know, our responsibility? I like a good lifestyle. You know, right now I'm roughing it out in life and I'm okay with that as well. (laughs) You know, ebbs and flows. But I prefer not to rough it out. I prefer to be living the nice lifestyle, buying whatever I want and doing how whatever I want without that restriction, right? But it's how do we distribute it and how do we do that work-life balance that I think a lot of nations have been able to succeed in doing that life-work balance, right? And creating that for their people. Not many, but they're out there. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're, they're out there and you're right. We need to be looking to that. A slight tangent actually to this, but you talking about redistribution of wealth. One of the things I sometimes debate with people is this idea that people who have left their home countries, whether it's, you know, because of a war situation or willingly like economic migrants, it's not always fair to assume that people don't want to go back to their home countries. And it's also not fair to assume that if the borders were completely open, that there was going to be this flood of everyone from the East traveling to the West. Like, I genuinely believe that people love living where they live as well. Yeah. And I mean, we build relationships. So I've lived, I've lived in five countries growing up. And then when I was 20, I came to the States, my birth country, but I've built a home for myself. And here's the funny thing. When I arrived in St. Louis, I hated St. Louis. I'm like, where did you bring me? That's the first thing I told my brother. It's a small little town in middle America, right? Like, but now it's a cool town. It's grown on me. It's, it is home. I've lived in St. Louis longer than I lived anywhere else. And for people that come from that space of traveling and having to move from one place to another throughout their lives or in different periods in their lives, our homes become the people we meet. Right. But for me, like I smell, I, I, I miss and I smell it daily. My grandma's house, these small little nuances. And I think like, just like, you know, when you're from Seattle and you live in Chicago, you get to go back home. Like Seattle will always be back home to you. Right. So, and I think that's the part that I miss. First of all, I want, I want the option just from a human dignity perspective. Right. We want to have the option. And I think Americans really take that for granted. Most of them don't even know the visa process or visas or what that even is, right? And I'm like, you can legit go anywhere in the world and you don't even know this privilege and what that means. So for me, it's, um, I just want to have the option. I want to have the option to do business with people in Yemen and maybe help them grow and maybe do business with Yemen in the U.S. and vice versa and build a relationship between these two lines. I would like to support local economies there and maybe help do business in the United States, maybe bring things from Yemen to here and, you know, package them here to where I'm bringing jobs to the U.S. And I want to do some things that are with Yemen, but because of the situation, I can't. I haven't been back home in 15 years. I haven't been to Yemen in 15 years. I won't even know it when I go back. And I know that. But it's not as just simple as going or coming here. It's sometimes the little nuances in between that you're like, I wish there was an ease. I was supposed to import coffee from Yemen. I was dealing with amazing farmers and embargoes happened and coffee prices skyrocketed. And now we're losing coffee farms. You know, there is, I think, an effect that hits 
the country. And unfortunately, a lot of Yemen, Yemeni people who are stuck outside of Yemen now are not rich, are not well off, and they're not doing very well because a lot of countries are not even allowing them to work. Therefore, we don't have that money that's coming into Yemen from the diaspora that other countries may have. It's this, I wish I could go back home, but I can't. I want to even go visit, but I won't. But I also don't belong in Yemen fully. I don't belong here fully. I don't belong anywhere fully, nor do I feel like a stranger anywhere, right? (laughs) It's this weird space of living in between. As I'm talking to people and I'm still just amazed, you know, in some countries that are very homogeneous and very limited in education and resources and conversation and all of that. I understand that part of the world being closed off from an acceptance perspective to others. But for me, I'm, we're in the States. We're in the West. We are in places where things have been exposed. Studies have been done. We have been having this conversation for so long. It's just mind-boggling to me that we're still having it about race and religion and sexuality. And I'm like, why are we even still having this conversation? Like, when are we going to get to the point of intelligence and human intellectual that we can become intellectual enough to be like, live and let live? And not even live and let live, like just live. Like, why does it matter? Oh, I'm so with you on that. I get so frustrated. It's so mind boggling that this is still a conversation. It's tiring, but you know, at the same time, Sabah, we're still here. And I don't know if it will ever stop because I think that's a part of human nature. Let's find groups that we can belong to so we can feel superior or stronger or whatever it is. I think that part of the animal instinct in our brain has not evolved just yet. You know, I feel like other parts have evolved, but that sense of needing to belong to a group and like, let's act from an animalistic perspective of like superiority and puffing our feathers, um, I think very much is still instinctly within the human mind. We haven't decoded that yet. I've never thought about it in that way, about it being, you know, the root of us effectively attacking does come down to a sense of belonging. Have you heard the, about the book Sapiens? I have heard of it, but I've not read it. It's an interesting book to read because <laughs> he very much speaks about how sapiens were able to make it out of all the human groups because we were able to have an imagination. And our imagination allowed us to create these thought ideologies, gods, whatever it is that we can all relate to and like gravitate towards creating groups. And when we had groups, we were able to do more and we were stronger. We were able to hunt more, gather more, do whatever we wanted more. So we started belonging to each other from either we look alike, we speak the same language, or we believe in the same God. So, and in the God, they like we're talking about like the sun and the yes. fire. We're talking about yes. like primitive human minds, right? Yes. Like humans, when they transition from being the bottom of the food chain to now having fire and weapons, and now they're on top of the food chain all of a sudden. And now how do you figure out the dynamic? It's an interesting book, but that kind of stayed with me. And I see it daily. Even me as an Arab American, I don't think my experience has been like many other Arab Americans. I'm educated. I come from a privileged background. My English is pretty decent. So people right away, the assumption goes from one side to the complete other. And it's like, oh, you're so eloquent. How come you're so educated? And it's, it's just really interesting, right? And the dynamic completely shifts. When I know some of my Arab colleagues don't really always necessarily deal with the same pleasantries because their accent is stronger or because, you know, they they were refugees or whatever it is. It's, it's a pretty interesting um, dynamic to see how people react to you based on your upbringing or class or comes opinions. into that also, right? Yeah. And opinions as well. You know, when you voice opinions like, oh, actually, I prefer American music to Arabic music I mean I'm very guilty of I do prefer uh, English you know Western music to Arabic music I always have but simple opinions like that people then all of a sudden do treat you differently like you get elevated in their eyes yeah Yeah, you do it's like whoa you know Mick Jagger yeah (laughs) right away I'm cool (laughs) And, and the truth is you know we all use those little things to help ourselves through life Oh, yeah, definitely use them. You know, for me right now, my ego is hurt because I'm driving Uber, but also at the same time, I'm very grateful for being in a country where I'm able to do that, to provide a living for myself and a pretty decent one to add, right? But what's really interesting, Sava, is 
I get a lot of people from everywhere, different classes, different races, different backgrounds get in my car. And man, our stereotypes are pretty interesting. I like to think that I'm a pretty open-minded human being that is accepting and loving of all, which I am. But my stereotypes come with music. Like I'll feel like, what kind of music does she listen to? Do I play the rock station? Do I play the acoustics station? Do I play, what, what station do I play? Hip hop, I always go to like Marvin Gaye station because I feel like that's safe and everybody likes that. <laughs> but my stereotypes really play into that as well. And even us, when we try to think of ourselves so openly, like we're like these enlightened creatures, and I don't climb enlightenment, claim it, but at some point, like, I feel like I'm all right. I'm doing okay. <laughs> well, I think that's true. I think everything we approach in life is from our own little box, yeah. isn't it? It's our own yeah. point of view. Yeah. And driving Uber, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And then I wonder, what are people's thoughts of me? What are people's ideas? Do they have a thought? Do they Have they created a life for me in their heads? Do they want to have a conversation? Do they not want to have a conversation? I think for me, the most tiring thing in having these conversations is I see and I know the magic power and knowledge that Arab women possess. I know so many brilliant, brilliant Arab women and not ones that just, you know, that have been westernized and lived outside. I'm talking about ones that are living in circumstances that are excruciating, that there's no support from the family, from the government, from the, like from anybody. And they are just doing amazing, amazing work. And, you know, the level of intellect and general conversations that we can have, what makes me really sad and I'm really tired of trying to show the world that. We are so buried. People really don't think of Arab women as smart, as intelligent, as go-getters, as any of that. And unfortunately, we're not breaking in the seams with that many women, but they do exist and they're in there. And just, I wish they were given the chance more to kind of shine and kind of show what they are capable of doing. Uh, but many, many are doing amazing work. And I really get tired of it. It's like, oh my God, you're an Arab woman and you're like this. I'm like, there's a lot of us. And trust me, even ones with burqas and ones with the niqab and ones with the hijab and ones that are covered are also very educated and very knowledgeable and very much involved in their communities and work. Hijab or not, that is not my place to discuss that or argue that or, you know, how I feel about it. But education is still there and intellect is still there. And these Arab women are very smart. Just talk to them. Don't be afraid of saying hi to a girl with a scarf on because... Many of the time, they are in a very lonely bubble world. Mm. And the ones I spoke to, they wish they would get more approached by people, yeah. you know? Yeah. That was actually one of the things I was going to speak to you about is the fact that Yemen is a really surprising country in the Middle East. And for a lot of people, they look at Yemen, they think of where it is geographically, and they assume... And of course, they're entitled to their assumptions. Everyone makes assumptions absolutely fine, but they assume certain things about the country that are actually really surprising. And for me, that is, you know, women have always had a right to drive. And I grew up in the 80s. My mom always drove. My aunts drove. They worked. They traveled. They voted. There was none of this really conservative regime. At least growing up, that was not existent. That is yeah. true. I feel like it was definitely different growing up. Even the conversations I have, I tried to start that Instagram page for the Yemeni youth, <laughs> you know, and it was really interesting. You know, what has happened in Yemen, it's the dumbing of the people has really worked and it's really unfortunate. It's, and I, I say that with all due respect, you know, it's just, it's circumstances, it's war, it's a lack of resources, lack of anything, right? It's, it's a country that does not provide for its people. So for what, 15 years now, people have had very limited resources. Some people grew up in that space and went from teenagers to adults in that space of war and mentality of like just being closed and seeing even open-minded families and liberal families and progressive families go into their shells, right? Because they don't want to have the conversation. They don't want to fight everybody. So they became a part of the status quo and they were okay with it. That's, I think, one of the saddest things that I'm seeing happening. It's when the prisoner becomes the jailer, right? And that is something I see within my community. And it's very sad to see, you know, and I never came to the girls with the take off the hijab or, you know, I never denounced Islam or its practices. And I'll never do that, regardless of what my belief is. My mom said something to me. She said, if you want to influence change and 
talk to people. You cannot attack their faith. You actually come to them from the place of their faith. And it's very real. And I I believe it's going to happen because I think this has rattled a lot of people. And I think many of us who are outside of Yemen have a yearning, even though we don't know what it is. But we have a yearning to like, as soon as things calm down, we are going to do something to help people, whatever it is, whether it's teaching them how to open businesses or to do podcasts or speak up, whatever it is. I feel like a lot of us are just waiting for that, you know, moment and some courageous ones are actually doing it now, you know, that have the courage and the means to do it are doing it now. And hats off to them because I don't have that courage or resources to do it now. Yeah, I'm with you there. There's a lot of people actually that I see, especially with the rise of social media and how easy it is to access. There are a lot of people really wanting to change things, but how do you change things when you are in a state of constant survival mode? Exactly. Like, and here's the thing, Yemen and everybody who's living there and everybody who's adjacent, I think we all have PTSD. I 100% agree. And here's the problem is explain that to somebody in Yemen. You have PTSD. Like what? I remember I told my mom at some point, I was like, you know, I have depression. She's like, well, you're from Yemen. We all have depression. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yeah, but that is the truth. And it's really sad. We all collectively... And generationally. And and generationally. It is just, it's mind boggling to me. But again, how do you, how do you address that? There's a whole bunch of layers of levels of education and knowledge that you have to understand before you can acknowledge, respect and address PTSD. And you also have to have food on your table. Exactly. Because PTSD is what? Like, girl, get out of my face, you know? (laughs) It's exactly that. When somebody told me, you know, something about animals in Yemen, like, oh, I was like, humans don't have rights in Yemen. We are not worried about animal rights right now. And I hate to say it that way because me in the States, I'm all about animal rights. But in Yemen, like, sorry, people got to survive, man. They really, feeding the dogs is not the priority. Yeah, I attended an international school, came from a very privileged background. And so I would have some of these views like, oh, why are you, you know, beating up the dog in the street? Like, that's not fair. And other people would say, why are you even worried about this dog? Like, children can't eat. And I think both can exist. I was shaming that person and they in turn were shaming me. And actually, they have absolutely every right to question why I care about a dog. But I also have, you know, that level of empathy because I was so privileged. And only after I grew up did I realize Exactly like your mom told you, you can't make people feel bad if you want to change their mind. Yeah. And also the funny thing is even with that in Yemen, poor people share their food with dogs. I know. You know, they give away their leftovers. They throw their leftovers out for the stray animals. And even with with that, but to you, and I understand that space that you grew up in, it was a bit different. Like the dogs needed to have the collar and be cuddled. And to them, it's like, we're feeding the dogs. (laughs) That's enough. Okay. They're, They're lives. So, yeah, it's no, I, I completely agree with you there. Talking about PTSD, can we just talk a little bit about the grief that many of us, especially from that region, and I say from that region because I'm from that region, but I imagine there are other people from other regions across the world who actually grew up with a lot of wars and civil unrest and how that, you know, stayed latent in our bodies, but actually does cause this incredible fatigue for us to be able to move forward with our lives? I mean, you know, for me, uh, Saba, I can, and my brother was in the car with me the other day and I was like, let me show you this quick YouTube of Yemeni young men who did the compilation of Yemeni songs. Ahmed Saif, I don't know if you know him, but it was, it's a lovely, lovely little video. They did different songs from different writers and different regions across Yemen, like classic songs. And the minute the beat dropped, I started crying, like emotional. And it's not just an emotional, it's a physical need. It's really interesting how like I can hear Abu Bakr Salam and instantly I feel like physical pain, yearning, like it's, and it's weird because I only lived in Yemen 10 years throughout my life. But, you know, from uh, worrying about cousins, worrying about family members, worrying about people you love who are still stuck there, worrying about the people who are outside of Yemen, 
who don't have resources, who are running out of money. And then seeing your own position. And a lot of people think, you know, when you go out and live outside of, out of Yemen, life is great. Life is so freaking hard for us. We don't have a support system. We have to make it work on our own. And it's difficult. And to see a whole community of people that you knew that were very well off, legit knock on the doors of poverty and like not knowing what's next is very traumatizing. It's like sleeping is difficult. Living becomes a bit difficult sometimes. I remember when the war happened in Yemen, the first like few years, I felt a lot of guilt living. When I did the things I did, I felt guilt. Like, how can I do this, right? It's like people in Yemen are dealing with war and I'm over here frolicking on a hike. You know, it's, but I have that knowledge of PTSD and I still have it, but I've removed triggers, stopped following the news. There's a lot of things that I had to do to stop myself. But I know people that if they hear fireworks, they freak out because they were in Yemen when the war happened, right? I'm in Colorado Springs and there's the Air Force Base. And I hear those jets quite often when I stay close to the base. And, you know, I wasn't even in the war in Yemen, but I was in the 94 war, the Civil War. And I remember being awoken the first day of the war with the jets and that sound. And I didn't think I had any trauma from it, but when I hear it, I'm aware. You know, I go pick up people at the army bases here quite often in my Uber, and I pick up Air Force officers that have been to Yemen. And I know when they say it, they say it from a place of endearment, and they want to let me know they know where Yemen is and my country, but we both know what they were doing, right? And it's just really interesting place of navigating my emotions. People here in the Air Force are serving their country. They're doing what they need to do, right? It's They signed up for the service. This is their job. So it's that mental, like compartmentalizing things is very important to our survival because, you know, we're not there, but we're here and we see things that affect that, whether it's policies, vote, like all of that, right? Who we vote for, how they're going to affect the situation in Yemen, all of that really matters. And I think we're in this constant, we're just constantly anxious, you know, like yeah. the phones ring late at night. You're constantly like, oh, crap. If a cousin calls at 3 a.m. my time, I'm always worried calling them back. You know, and I told my friends, I was like, there is births, deaths, marriages that I have missed. There are new family members that I don't even know who are now teenagers. You know, they're not babies. They're like 14, 15. And I don't know them. They don't know me. We have no relation yet. They're a part of my extended worry what's their life gonna look like yeah I have that wonder all the time as well yeah. and the anxiety and the jets I can't hear jets uh, without freaking out even now yeah I mean I, it's I literally can't it's real right I don't know I think I've always been good about I don't hide my emotions nor do I bury them but I'm very much like okay I see you I acknowledge you we're gonna navigate around you because I know that this is not real right so it's a process, but also lots of years of therapy. Yeah. And it's a lot of mental work. <laughs> and it really, and it's constant. And sometimes you fall back. And that's the point of this is actually, there are so many of us who have had so many of these experiences and who, even when we look like we're resting, we're not resting. Something is always ticking. And even you saying about the navigating, compartmentalizing I mean, you had to train yourself to compartmentalize like that. You have to train yourself to navigate like that. You are never really exposing yourself and vulnerable, even as someone who you're saying, okay, I show my emotions and everything, but actually it's calculated. It's work that you've had to do. You maybe aren't showing all of your layers, even when you want to show them. You know, it's interesting you say this. This is cool. I didn't think I was going to come out with an aha moment out of this podcast. So I'm really happy. So I've been really really anxious lately. And I would say like for the last 15 years, 15 to 18 years, I have had constant, really high anxiety and like having to manage it all the time. And at some period I did really good managing it. The business was going well. I was doing the things I needed to do for my self-care and all of that. And then all of that went away like that in four weeks. So it's like, all right, I'm packing my bags. I'm going back to Egypt. Like it just happened so quickly. And now I'm back to my high levels of like, I'm just tired. I'm constantly anxious. I'm not constantly tired. I'm constantly tired of working. And you know what I said the other day? I'm tired of having to always be strong. 
And I mean that. And my friends are like, you're so persistent. You're so strong. You're such a survivor, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I've been through a lot here in the States. You know, I've, I've really been through, I, my ass has been kicked. I would not change it. I love that my ass got kicked. You know, we come from a privileged space. So, you know, we're a little spoiled. A little humbling does not hurt anybody, right? But I'm tired of being always on survival mode. I'm just exhausted. I don't want to have to be strong anymore. Like, I just want to live. I just want to enjoy my life and not have to be strong. But, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I wonder how much of my high anxiety, because that's really when it kicked in. It kicked in right when the war started happening in Yemen. And I have not been able to bring it down since. I've managed it but it will creep up again. And you know, I'll be honest with you, I've never addressed this with my therapy from a PTSD perspective. So this is something that I'm definitely gonna explore because I think that might have to do a lot with my constant state of anxiety. And I I also think it's a lot of unaddressed grief that we have for the state of things and the guilt that you said earlier. Absolutely, there's always that guilt I sometimes look at other people and I think to myself, do they live their lives by thinking, oh, this is our path and other people, this is their path. And that's the end of their thought process. My thought process never ends there. My thought process is they could have been me. I could have been them. My life could have been very different. I'm a woman, like so many little things that could have changed the trajectory of my whole entire life that feel really big. And I don't know if if everyone else feels that way sometimes I just look around you know I live in the UK so it's a very privileged place and when the Ukraine war happened or when it started rather because it's still happening so a lot of people were very shocked that this was happening on their doorstep and I was shocked because obviously it's wrong and war is awful but at the back of my mind I was thinking oh I just knew there was going to be a war at some point it was just a matter of when yeah it's that you've been trained to expect that right it's like but also it's like I think it's that part of when I told you like I think we know a lot more than a lot of people do you know our background coming from where we come and our exposure to that side of politics I see kids here and I'm like they know nothing about the war in Palestine they don't know nothing about the war in Ukraine you know I grew up watching the news you know I've always known about wars I've always seen death and famine and I don't think that traumatized me. Honestly, I think this is why we are the way we are in like being empathetic and like wanting to help people that come from spaces that are different. I think because we were exposed to it in such a young age, I think it actually created some kind of understanding where we stand in life. Is Are we privileged? Are we not? Okay, for now, where do we stand on the not? Am I starving to death or am I, alhamdulillah, I'm being fed? You know what I'm saying? Like it's, I think that exposure was so important. And I see kids, like my brother's kids here, they know nothing about hunger. They don't know anything about starvation, you know, very sheltered <laughs> from what's happening. And I think that is the West in general. I think Europe is better than the US. That's for sure. I think the exposure in Europe. And I think that comes with the proximity to everything that's happening, right? Europe is right there. Africa is right there. Middle East people are trickling over to Europe way more than they are in the U.S. So it's just, it's, I think by proximity, people know a little bit more than they do here in the U.S. But I had a conversation with a professor of mine, a political science professor, and she said, you know, one of the most complicated things for me as a teacher is to teach people how to connect the dots, right? And I think we both grew up in somewhat political households to where we saw a lot of dot connecting happening. Like sometimes the dots were not really connecting, but they connected them. The conversation in politics and what things to look for and how things will transpire. It's something I think that people in the U.S. are just not exposed to or in the West in general. It's, it's You have to seek it. It's not a natural, constant exposure. Where we come from, it's always been political. Everywhere you go, the conversation is a constant thing. Whether you're a kid or an adult, you're going to be in a room, in a space where this conversation is constantly being had versus here, you can be in a group of friends and never talk politics in two years because you're all interested in music. And that's just how it is. People find their groups and they kind of like go with them. And that's what's important to them. And the idea is there's so much around the world. We can't all care about everything. But I think from a war perspective or seeing things a bit differently, I think it's because naturally a lot of Arabs are exposed. And I think a lot of us are pretty decent political analysts. to a certain <laughs> If you put 10 Arabs in a room and 10 Americans in the room, 
the conversation that the Arabs can have is probably more international and more encompassing from different parts of the world. And they can carry a political conversation to a certain extent versus depending on who the 10 American people are, you may not, you know, be successful. It's just a different style, a different lifestyle. We were raised to understand and see politics, I think, in our countries because there's always been turmoil around us politically. Yeah, there has I actually wanted to ask you, you know, I remember your mom very, very fondly. In my head, she was a revolutionary. I felt she was visionary. She was very independent. She did her own thing. I wonder, how did that shape you? And how many battles did you see her fighting that uh, you wondered if you will also have to fight them as well? You know, it's interesting. I, that's, part of what fights did she fight that I thought I would have to not even a thought in my mind I never thought I would have to fight for anything to be honest with you because my mom had the males around her were supportive so for me my mom was a politician and she was fighting in politics and that was it it wasn't her being a woman fighting in politics because her being a woman was not a part of the conversation in the household so like my grandfather they called him Abu Bilqis he had three other boys He supported her like since she was a kid. But it's really interesting. I was telling somebody, I remember my mom going on a protest. And I really think this is why I'm so like in your face. (laughs) (laughs) My mom let me lead the protest, like gave me the little mic and like, you lead the protest. There were like thousands of people walking behind me, right? As a kid, I never thought about it until recently because somebody asked me this question. I also, I mean, it was a natural thing for a woman to be strong, but also the women around her, your mom, it was Amit Al-Alim, it was Raufa Hassan, it was like Fawzi and Oman, it was all these magnificent, strong powerhouses that were all supported and loved. And like, none of them came from a place of, I'm being beat up because I'm politically active. None of them came from that space. And this is when we say we grew up in a different time, it's because our mothers, I think, came from a different bubble completely but yeah I never thought of it that way and to be honest with you I give a lot of kudos to my father because when I went back to Yemen and I went to school in Yemen from fourth grade to eighth grade when I came back I wanted to go to Shahada Asavain which is a public school in Yemen I wanted to go to a public school that's at the end of our street because my entire neighborhood went there all my friends my cousins and I wanted to be in that school too and my dad said no you will always have the education and be exposed to the same things as your brother And he did that. So for me in my household, honestly, the conversation of me being a girl and I should not, did not come up very often. It happened in the street. It was my cousins, my neighbors, the people talking, but it was never the household. However, I think them just exposing me to their lives and like mom taking me to meetings with her. And when she goes on conferences, she took me with her as a very young kid. So although I didn't see what was happening, I was able to see this little human because my mom is pretty short (laughs) (laughs) and very dainty and very feminine you know come in here and like soften up the biggest you know Juan Muslimin and radicalist Muslims because she knew how to have the conversation with them so I, I, I think that's a part that I took from her that just leaning in and taking space in the room You know, that's something that I think really has stayed with me. And funny enough, I've always been in male-dominated industries. So, you know, making space for the next generation, I hope. No, you definitely are. How were you able to believe in yourself and back yourself that you deserve that space, even when you're saying out in the street, your cousins and the people around you were saying you don't deserve that? Because we've been, you know, we've had our fair share of unsolicited advice in our lives. I'll tell you this, at my... um... I think there was this thing of like, it was weird because even like my aunties and all of that, Bethana's Bethana, she'll do whatever Bethana wants to do. She didn't grow up here. There's that excuse of she didn't grow up here. Mind you, I was in fourth grade. So I was a kid, like I'm allowed to wear shorts, goddammit. <laughs> you know, but I don't know. I think it's just the empowerment. First, mom and dad did not go with the society and what everybody did. So... The funny thing is they allowed me to go into the paranoia of like, people are talking and I want to be a certain way because people are talking. And my dad always used to say, people talk, like, don't worry about yeah. it. You know, it comes and it goes. <laughs> it's like, but you felt comfortable enough to have that conversation with them, which is great. Yeah. And then for them oh, to yeah, yeah. reassure I, and you. I, honestly, I sit back and I say like, you know, even my parents, they allowed me to travel very young, alone. And like exposed me to the world very young. And I sit back and I honestly think they wanted to do different 
from what society allows women to do. They just didn't know what to do or how to do it. So they kind of, I think they were just winging it. We hope for the best. <laughs> it, that resonates with me so much. You know, I, I say this to my mom. I mean, maybe I haven't actually, I'm going to have to say it to her, but my younger sister recently went to uni and, you know, she's 18 and I see her and I'm like, you're such a baby. And I thought to myself, my parents let me go to the UK on my own at 18 in a time before even mobile phones properly really yeah this is 2002 and I think you know definitely my dad was like your dad he's like if your brothers did this then you can do this too and you know his support was the reason why I went but I never thought of it in the way you're thinking you're saying but it's so true they were like we need to do things differently and that means taking risks and hopefully hoping for the best yeah it's a risk that we're taking. I was crying to my dad the other day. He had a small surgery and I called him before I went to Egypt and I was just bawling. I'm like, oh, no, you had the surgery and, you know, you guys are getting old and you're alone and da, da, da. And he said, stop crying. He said, this is the life we hoped for you. This is the life we created for you. We knew that this day was going to come. I hope that my life ends around you guys, but it may not. And it's OK. You know, and that gave me some peace. Like, OK. He knew what he was doing in the sense of like, get out, get out, get out of Yemen. And it's really sad because for me, I'm like, who influences changes if we all leave, right? But also, if I'm in Yemen right now, I don't know what my life would look like. It's hard here, but I know it would have been probably harder. So it's picking your heart. But I don't know. It's just for me, I, I really do. And, you know, Sabah, I think one of the things that we forget and a part of when I have the conversation about like how Yemeni women are being treated or how they live their lives, I forget that I come from a very small percentage of people that live the lifestyle we did. Very, very, very small percentage, you know, even to allow females to do it in that way. I can probably count the families that allow their girls to do or have the life that we've built for ourselves, right? It's, I've had no interference. The interference has always been to support me do the next crazy thing I'm about to do. But it's never been come back home or cover up or don't go do this or what are you doing? Or it's never been that. It's always been, oh, you're messing up again. Cool. So now my sister's 21 and we finally convinced her to come to the States. But a part of her fear was like, I don't want to come there. You guys have struggled so much. But like, we have. You don't have to, you know, that generational, like we are going to make it better for you. We're going to help you not have to deal with the same issues we dealt with. But that generational thing is very real. And I always try to give them grace that I would give to random strangers in the streets and remind myself that they grew up in circumstances and a country and lifestyle and a mentality that is light years different from the way they raised us. And they did their best with the resources and the knowledge they had at the time. And that they have their own trauma that they probably have never addressed. Right. So it's like that when you reach a certain age, you just become tired of fighting the parents and fighting all of the things that you are today because of the trauma and the things that they did to you, yada, yada, yada. And you sit back and like, all right, they're humans. They had their own set of trauma and they've never been given the opportunity to address it and move forward from it in life. But yet they created a pretty decent life for us. You know, I think that's so beautiful. You're right. You're like, you're tired, but actually it's time to stop fighting with those nearest to you. I always used to feel the most frustration from my family because I would want them to see my point of view more than anyone else. I felt like it was very easy for me to have similar opinions to friends, even strangers. But when it came to my family, it was really difficult. And you just, I guess a part of you wants to wants to have that sense of belonging with your family that you have with your friends. Man, it's really interesting the age that we're going into, I think. It's a very reflective space, I think. You know, we've done a lot of soul searching the last 10 years of our lives, and I think we're entering a pretty new phase. And like I said, I just try to be compassionate with them and to allow them the grace that I would allow people. Like you said, you know, you find these connections with your friends. And my brother, I think, was hurt a couple of days ago. His friends came over here and I actually didn't work and hung out with them. Today, I'm going out with friends of mine. And he's like, why? He's like, he's trying to manage, help me manage my finances, which I really appreciate. But I was like, you know, I need to do something with friends. He's like, but you were a couple of days ago. I'm like, no, these are your friends. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, are we still doing that? (laughs) Yeah, you're like forever. We're doing it forever. (laughs) Yes, boundaries. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, but I get that. And I think uh, with family, it's, we don't choose them, right? With friends, it's a choice. So a lot of times we either choose people that help us grow or people that agree with us. I think that's where we end up a lot of times. So I think the connections between friends are so much stronger is because it's a choice. It's an effort, just like choosing a husband, right? Or a partner in life. It's it's a choice that you consciously make to connect with this human. And I think that's why our connections usually are deeper and stronger is because it's a choice that we make. It's nothing connects us with that human other than our genuine like or love or whatever attracts us to them. But you know, the family thing, especially with us, I think our exposure level, even if we come from educated families, our exposure level to what is the social conversation out there varies. And it's interesting to have that conversation with them because, you know, where I am is completely different than where they are. And maybe I was there 10, 15 years ago and I have done the work to kind of evolve when they don't even have the resources to do so um, or the time or the energy. So it becomes a little bit like, where do you draw the line of having this conversation and my love for my family, right? And like, do I disown and disconnect from everybody that does not agree with me or does not see the world from my lens, which is, I don't think is sustainable. I'm still learning how to balance that space with friends. Like, why do you not care about shit that matters to me? And they're like, we care about 20 other thousand things. We really don't have the mental capacity, (laughs) you know? So it's, I don't know, it's a strange place to be. Yeah, I think the introspection point, it's really interesting. I feel as though I'm approaching a time in my life where I think we're young enough to still be the leaders of the future. You know, we're still, we still have a long career ahead of us. But at the same time, yeah. And at the same time, I'm thinking, where is it going to go? Sometimes I feel like the conversation misses us as a layer of society and looks to the youngsters and that's fantastic. But there's also us who have experienced so much and who have gone through so many changes societal, technological, geographical, political, everything. And we still have more to give. And I'm not sure where that is. And this is where, you know, sometimes the laying one brick at a time comes in place, right? I think in general in life, and this is something that, you know, I'm I'm learning from my mentors and peer mentors that are like, I tend to overwhelm myself by looking at the big picture, right? It's like my company needs to have a hundred people Versus, you know, start just booking customers. <laughs> one, get really good at booking customers, then get really good at hiring crew. And like that one thing at a time, right? So when it comes to building societies, I do believe in the trickle. It's going to build up. It's a trickle down, right? So Saba, even if you make a difference and change one person's life, down the road, this is a generational thing, right? So for me, why did I pay my crew members well? You know, I hope to always continue doing that. So I'm starting my business here again next month in Colorado. And my hope is if I hire five people and they all have two, three kids, and now I'm providing their families a decent living that they don't have to have two jobs and they can just have the one job, focus on the kids, their education, provide a better life for them. Now there's a generation right under that layer, right? That is going to benefit from me providing for just four people. And then this layer of kids, they're going to have children. So that's how I, from my perspective and my little bubble, I really believe in that. I really, really believe in it doesn't always have to be in this dramatic gesture. Sometimes it's the small little things that really make a huge difference in the long run. So with me and Yemeni girls, like at some point, and I'm really sad this didn't come through and maybe one day it will happen again, but I wanted to start a network of Yemeni girls around the world, women mentoring girls, women mentoring each other. And I already started a process and I lost all the data. Shit hit the fan in my life. My car got stolen. So they lost everything and I just shut it down. But the idea was to create a network of women who have made it or are making it and have built their lives and cut a way through corporate or medicine or whatever it is that their respected fields are. And let's connect them with a younger generation of women who are interested in these fields, but don't know what we know. One of the things I wish I had known, I didn't know about career centers and universities. I didn't know about internships. I didn't know about any of these things that could have really, really helped me in my trajectory of my career. I didn't have guidance. I didn't have any of that. So 
I often wonder how my life would have turned out if I had that, you know, and I had a professor that told me, Buthena, you had to grow up too fast on your own. You lost your path early, but you're one of the smartest people I know. And I don't say that to say I'm one of the smartest people. I say that to say it is so important for us to find people who see something in us that can help us create a path for ourselves that have been through it, that have missed out on opportunities and wish they could have done things different. And I think that's really, really like us for Yemeni people right now. That's, I think, where the work is going to come in. Like, how can we help younger folks make a way for themselves? I think that's, for me, I feel the responsibility, like, we influence change small things, right? Right now, your podcast, you don't know how many people this is going to touch. You don't know how many people are going to listen to it. You don't know how many minds are going to be changed. People are going to be intrigued, hearts softened. You don't know the impact of what you're doing right now. So I think, you know, sometimes we we really do miss the point and like there's a lot of work that we can do on a smaller scale and that in the long run will have that impact. So when we overwhelm ourselves and then when, I don't know, girl, our country is falling apart. Nobody knows. No political analyst can really tell you what the hell is happening or where we're going to land. It's a very up in the air. So you cannot overwhelm yourself with that when you don't even, we know nothing. You just do the work one day at a time and hope for the best in the long run because that's that's all that's we can do. We are. Yeah. That's all yeah. we can do. Yeah. So if you imagined a life where you weren't so tired, what would it look like? Girl, I would be on a yacht. Just, just honestly, like put me on a sea somewhere. Give me some, honestly, like my dream life. Is a nice little place. It doesn't have to be big. A lot of windows on the beach somewhere where I have an art studio and I can just get on my boat and life is good. Where I can just create art and not have to worry about paychecks or bills. (laughs) You know, so. And access to my family. Just things being easy. Last time I saw mom, it has been four years before I saw her. That's a long time. So access to the family just being easier and, you know, just want to put everybody you love on an island. Yeah, I definitely resonated with the citizen of the world. You know, but, yeah. We belong everywhere and nowhere, so. <laughs> and we're not the only ones who feel that way. And I, and I know, there's a whole happiness in that. <laughs> but, you know, what I'm not tired of is definitely doing the work and telling people where I'm from and the magic that is within people that, you know, are Arabs and from Yemen. And I'm never going to be tired of that. Maybe it's my dad's diplomatic work that's so ingrained in my head, you know? You gotta always spread the message. (laughs) I love that you're spreading the message and I love how uplifting this conversation has actually been. And thank you so much. Same, same, Saba. It's been really interesting for me as well and I've definitely had some moments that I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be thinking about this conversation for a while. I hope so. I mean, definitely for me as well. You have made me think of things in a different perspective. So thank you for it again and it's a very uh, you know unnerving prospect to be this vulnerable on the internet but I really appreciate it absolutely this is a pleasure this is so much fun thank you for having me no my pleasure thanks everyone for listening